People harass other people under their own names all the time, all the time. Facebook requires everyone to use their real names because you know Mark Zuckerberg is an alien who believes that that creates more authentic social interactions, which it absolutely does not. Right. And you still see people saying horrible things to each other on Facebook. Welcome back to the podcast edition of Untangled. Okay, I know what you must be thinking. Two podcasts in two weeks. You're really working hard to produce that sweet content. And you're right, I am. But like any relationship, this is a two-way street. So make sure to do your part by subscribing to Untangled on Apple or Spotify and sharing this episode with a few friends. For this month's newsletter, I wrote about pseudonymity, harassment, and what they reveal about our relationship to technology. In it, I drew upon Alice Marwick's model of morally motivated networked harassment to help contextualize the backlash to Katie Natopoulos' story that revealed the real identities of the pseudonymous founders of the Board Ape Yacht Club. Marwick's model is the best explanation for why harassment happens online that I've come across. So I was thrilled to host Marwick on Untangled to dive into it. Alice Marwick is an associate professor at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, where she researches the social, political, and cultural implications of popular social media technologies. In this episode, we discuss the morally motivated network harassment model and what it helps explain that maybe we didn't understand before, the impact of network harassment at an individual, group, and societal level, why social media companies aren't designed or incentivized to address network harassment and how network harassment relates to the process of online radicalization. Listen to the end to hear what advice Marwick would offer her teenage self. I've included links to Marwick's work on harassment and radicalization in the show notes. As always, if you like the podcast, please review it, rate it, and share it. And now, my interview with Alice Marwick. Alice Marwick, welcome to Untangled. Thanks for having me. So what's your story? How did you come to be a scholar who studies the social and cultural implications of social media? Well, like a lot of other people, I think I came to this because it was something that I loved and that I participated in. When I was in high school, my town was part of a pilot project for Prodigy, which was an early sort of dial-up network sort of like CompuServe owned by IBM. Um, And so starting when I was like maybe 11 or 12, and this is like late 80s, early 90s, I was talking to people online. And when I got to college, uh, I became, I met almost all of my friends through a bulletin board on our fax BMS system. Uh, and, And that's like the mid 90s. So I sort of have always had this deep affinity with computer mediated communication. It's always been a place I felt really comfortable. And when I got out of college, I was a women's studies major. So I went into the dot-com boom because that was a thing you could do back then as being sort of like a smart generalist. And I started working for a series of failed startups and I eventually kind of moved into what now would be called like UX, um, but at the time was like UI or it didn't even really have a name in a lot of startups. So I started doing research on like what our users were doing and different products that I was working on. 
And I got frustrated because there were a lot of questions I wanted to ask that my employers were not interested in the answers to. And so when the dot-com boom crashed and I got fired for like the fourth time, I was like, okay, why don't I just go get a graduate degree and kind of ride this out until the market's better. And I ended up finding the field of communication, which I didn't know existed. And the learning that there was a whole discipline of people who were asking these questions and applying sort of the feminist theory and critical race theory that I loved to these questions. Um, and so I've been basically studying social interaction on the internet since I started grad school in 2003. And then what got you interested in how harassment happens online? So a good friend of mine growing up became a fairly prominent feminist blogger in the mid-aughts. She and a couple of her uh, friends, they ran this feminist blog called Feministing. And I would see them around or I'd see them at South by Southwest. And they would tell me about all the hate and harassment they got from men's rights activists. And I remember at one year, uh, my friend, her name is Samita Mukhopadhyay. she said to me, you know, we have a dedicated FBI agent who deals with all the death threats that we get. Um, and at the time, a lot of the internet was still very like touchy-feely. I was doing a project on fashion bloggers at the time, and they generally did not experience that kind of harassment. And I got really interested in why, like, yes, misogyny, yes, sexism, but why were these feminist bloggers getting this kind of ire? Um, and I was interested in what now is called male supremacist groups, but at the time we just called like the men's rights movement. I was interested in their role in all of this, which sort of brought me into this extant feminist literature around online harassment. And then how have we traditionally understood how harassment happens online? Like, what do we know from the literature? So before it was called harassment, it was called flaming. At the time, all social media was text-based. So flaming would involve someone writing an incredibly vitriolic email or Usenet post to you, usually using profanity or telling you you're stupid or some other kinds of like very like spicy words. And there was this literature trying to explain flaming and a lot of it was social psychology Things like, oh, you know, these are people who are thrill-seeking, they're more aggressive, uh, it's definitely linked to anger, um, and none of that, to me, explained what was going on. I think the best known theory from that time period is something called the online disinhibition effect, which the gamer comic strip Penny Arcade sort of reclaimed in the early aughts as the greater internet F-wad theory which is basically like when you have a person who has an audience um, and there's any kind of conflict, they turn into like a raving F-wad in their, in their uh, speech. So the idea is you're disinhibited, you don't know the person you're talking to, you're much more likely to like lash out and scream at them. But then I saw a fantastic keynote at AIR in maybe that's the Association of Internet Researchers. It's kind of like a wacky academic conference by Lisa Nakamura, who's a very prominent scholar of race and online communication. She's a brilliant woman. And she basically took down this theory in a single speech that was like, just because you're disinhibited or just because you're angry doesn't mean all of a sudden you're going to spout racism. It doesn't mean you're going to spout sexism. Like I could get super angry, but I'm not going to turn into some raving misogynist, you know? So mm -hmm. she was like, this doesn't explain what we see. So I, I got very, very interested in trying to figure out why. 
the feminist literature on this and feminist scholars really have been the pioneers in writing about harassment, I think is very descriptive. They have done a fantastic job sort of mapping out the landscape for women speaking online. There's a lot of excellent literature on the consequences of online harassment, like how it affects the victims. Um, and the reasons that tend to be isolated in this literature is that it's, you know, it's about sexism, it's about racism, it's about misogynoir, it's about transphobia, or it's connected to, you know, systems of sexism that police women's actions in public. So there's a big similarity, I think, between street harassment and online harassment in some ways. Um, but again, I, I was really curious as to why, like why? It can't just be sexism. Like what is the reason why this mm -hmm. is happening so much? And so that's what sort of fueled the project. So talk a bit about the model that came out of your research that you call morally motivated networked harassment and sort of what it helps explain that maybe we didn't understand before. So in short, the model explains why people harass each other. And it's basically because people think harassment is justified because there's a moral norm that they believe the target has violated. And because they're part of a community with a set of moral norms and social values, by attacking somebody else, they're shoring up their own sense of self and their own community values. And what this explains is harassment outside of partisan boundaries. Like lots of the people I spoke to had been harassed because of like these very niche debates in small communities, like in the blogosphere or in like fandom. And they didn't map to our understandings of left or right in any way. In some ways you couldn't even think about them as partisan or even political. Um, and it also explains why people harass beyond just, oh, they're jerks or they're sexist or racist. And so I think that this is really about providing a model of a phenomenon on, online that people use as a tactic to police each other's actions. And by understanding the model and that both people on the left, the right, you know, the center, non-ideological, whatever groups do this, we can better understand the phenomenon than I think if we're just looking at it from like a feminist perspective or we're just looking at like racist harassment online. So I want, to, I want to dig into the model a bit and sort of walk through it step by step, beginning with the accusation. So what makes an accusation salient or sort of more likely to trigger harassment? So an accusation can be anything, but it's generally that somebody has violated a social norm. And I'm going to assume that a lot of your listeners are on Twitter a lot, and you see this on Twitter basically every single day. There'll be like a politician, like sometimes it's stuff like, you know, Ted Cruz, went on vacation while his state was having the, you know, this massive power failure in the middle of winter. Or sure sometimes did. it's like, he sure did. <laughs> or sometimes it's like, you know, this professor at this university is a sexist creep and yet they're still teaching because they're tenured and they're protected by the university. And then sometimes it's a celebrity did X, Y, or Z. And the Stan stuff, the celebrity stuff, often is very like interior, like to really understand a lot of those arguments and why they count as accusations, you have to really be on the inside of the culture. So the, not every one of these accusations obviously turns into networked harassment. And I think what distinguishes the ones that do from the ones that don't is that some of them are amplified, they get more traction, they get bigger and they involve this moral evaluation that you're not just saying oh this person sucks or they're stupid you're saying they did an immoral thing they did something wrong and 
there is, you know, there's a huge literature around morality, which I'm not really engaging with. I use the definition of morality as, you know, you're thinking about an idea or an object or an event as something bigger than just an individual, that it's about something that's good or bad for society or culture or your social network, right? So if somebody is doing something, you know, if this professor, this imaginary sexist professor, you know, the idea is that it's immoral because this person is violating social norms around misogyny and sexism, but they're also in a position of power that they're probably exploiting and they're violating moral norms that a university is supposed to, you know, make sure that there's like a standard behavior level to which people uh, adhere to. And then within the context of the accusation, you talk about attack vectors. What makes for an attack vector? So I love this concept because it came directly from my informants. And it, you know, when I started working on this, a lot of people were very hostile to the idea that left-wing people do harass people. And they absolutely do. They totally do. Um, and attack vectors sort of helped me understand the difference between when women are getting harassed or women of color, et cetera, versus like white guys. And so in information security slang, an attack vector is an exploitable system vulnerability. So if you're like a hacker or something, it's like, you know, whatever, that exhaust port on the Death Star or something that you can like get at and like cause the whole thing to blow up. Um, and in the context of this paper, I used attack vector as a quality of a person that can be used as a source of abuse. So this is often gender, it's often race, it can be sexuality, it can be, you know, whether you're cisgender or trans, um, it can also be things like your looks. Um, so an example might be if you're a woman or you're non-binary, there's like an entire world of insults that are very specific to that kind of person, right? So if you're a woman, you're going to probably get a lot of sexualized violence, possibly even rape threats, a lot of just like sexist and misogynist comments. Your gender has become an attack vector. Um, a man can definitely get harassed. And men, and obviously men of color and queer men get harassed more than white men, but even white, straight, cisgender men can and do get harassed, but their gender or their race is not necessarily an attack vector in the same way. Um, I did have a couple of exceptions. There was a guy in my uh, corpus who is biracial but passes as white, and he was being harassed by mostly left-leaning people. And in that case, his whiteness did become an attack vector. But I think it's similar to racism in that you have to understand the history behind these things and the kinds of abuse that they open people up to. So it's not, it's not exactly the same when you're talking about whiteness or maleness, since those are normally seen as, you know, the standard. So we've talked about what makes for a salient accusation and sort of what makes folks vulnerable to that accusation. Next comes the justification. This is the idea that online networks justify harassment by accusing the person of being harassed, of violating the network's moral norms. Could you maybe walk through an example? Sure. So there's one of the women I interviewed was a, uh, a body positive fat activist. And she had been blogging for a really long time. She had all this like very big internet presence. She was like a very successful like activist and internet personality. And she had always gotten a lot of like fat phobic comments. In fact, the abuse she suffered was really quite intense. She had been attacked by a fat phobic blog called Fat People Hate. It was a subreddit and then it moved to some other kind of forum. And 
the people had actually talked about seeing her at her neighborhood Trader Joe's and revealing her, her location and all these things. So really creepy. But what really escalated the harassment up to like insane levels was when she um, set up a Patreon for her book that she was working on. And that allowed a lot of these attackers to construct this moral justification for their hate of her. Like they probably hated her just because they were fat phobic and she's a woman and she's successful and yada, yada. But they came up with this whole backstory that she was scamming people out of their money and she was taking people's money and she was wasting it on things. And we've, I've, I've actually talked to people at, at these kinds of crowdfunding platforms and they say that this moment where someone starts to actually ask for money for the work that they're doing is often a point at which harassment escalates because it provides this justification. Because you can always say, it doesn't matter, you know, always say this person's a scammer. Um, you know, I think this, this technique is perhaps the best known example of this is Anita Sarkeesian, who was, you know, at the center of Gamergate and who had set up a really successful Kickstarter to do these videos about feminist tropes in video games. If you look at what she actually produced from the Kickstarter, it's like exactly what she said she would do and more. I mean, she worked hard. She produced all these videos. Whereas I can think of five or six people off the top of my head who went to their audience and was like, give me a bunch of money to do something. And then they like disappeared off into the right. ether. But it's in creating this justification for somebody like Anita Sarkeesian or like my activist informant, it allows people to think that they're not just justifying them because they're like a sexist troll, but they're, there's a justification because this person is an immoral scammer. And often they'll construct this body of justifications for this. Um, like Sarkeesian calls this an information cascade, um, but it's often like there's sometimes there's books, of, there's PDFs, there's like Instagram stories that have like hundreds of screenshots and explanations of things. It creates what's called a gish gallop which is basically when you put a whole bunch of facts forward, like you just try to overwhelm your opponent with the sheer volume of information. And then you waste everyone's time trying to disprove each of the facts, even if the facts are completely preposterous. And often when you look at these information cascades or you look at the receipts or whatever, a lot of them are very flimsy, but it's the sheer volume of having this justification of having this like, oh, this person's really problematic. All you have to do is go and look and see and do your research and you'll find out all these horrible things that they've done. Um, and it creates what I think can be very persuasive for people to get involved in the harassment. The information cascade slash flood is a nice transition into the problem of amplification. What role do highly followed nodes in a given network play and morally motivated network harassment? They're very key because they're what turns things from maybe a message or five messages into a hundred messages or a thousand messages. Sometimes it's just about quote tweeting or retweeting or you know literally just taking somebody else's accusation and amplifying it. And then that entire audience, their entire audience who sh presumably shares the same moral norms as them now understands that this is a bad person that they need to attack. Um, in other cases, as on, you know, I did a different paper with uh, my colleagues, Becca Lewis and Will Parton on YouTube response videos. And in that case, you've got these like highly followed influencers, like these political influencers who will go through somebody's YouTube video or they'll go through their body of work. They'll construct a moral justification for why this person is awful. They'll leave that out in the world and then all their followers will go and harass the person. And in that case, we call that a blueprint for harassment. 
So sometimes the amplifier is where the harassment originates or they sort of, they create sort of a, a map for doing it. And sometimes they're just amplifying somebody else's accusation. But it means that it's able to spread much further and wider than wherever the accusation originated. Right. It seems like part of the, or a key element of the problem of amplification is that it takes the content out of its original context and moves it into the sort of amplifiers or the harassers context. Could you talk a little bit about the relationship between amplification and another concept I know you're quite, uh, quite familiar with, context collapse? Sure. So um, Dana Boyd and I originated the concept of context collapse in a paper published in 2011. And in it, we talked about how on social media, very different audiences get sort of collapsed into one. And so they're visible to each other. And this causes conflicts because sometimes you behave differently in different contexts with different people, and you're not able to do that if they're all flattened. But in this case, what happens is groups with diametrically opposed moral norms are extremely visible to each other. And when something is taken from the context in which it's been communicated into another context, sometimes it's very hard for that new context to understand the original meaning. Um, and often it means that you open the author up to this whole new wave of people seeing it who aren't familiar with that context, right? So, Often I think what you see happening on places like TikTok, for example, is you know, you'll have a whole bunch of TikTok creators who are like, you know, trans people or something, and they're talking to each other, right? They're part of like a trans TikTok community. And then you'll have these accounts that are like, you know, they all use horrible words, so I won't use that, but they're basically these accounts on YouTube that collect a bunch of trans YouTubers together and are like, let's make fun of these people. Aren't they ridiculous? Aren't they so woke? aren't they, you know, whatever. Um, and obviously these people are not interested in talking to some anti-trans like YouTuber. They're interested in talking to each other. Like this is part of their community, mm -hmm. but the norms of their community and the norms of the community that's attacking them are very, very different. So something that might be completely acceptable within one community might be very unacceptable in a different community. So we've walked through the model step by step. What are the consequences of morally motivated network harassment? How does this typically impact the person being harassed? And then more broadly, how does it shape sort of group dynamics online? So I think it has three major consequences. The first is personal. People who are harassed very frequently report being sad, depressed, isolated. They feel that it was their fault. They feel silly for taking something on the internet so seriously. And in the paper, I actually write that as I went through my interviews, I noticed that almost everyone I talked to would say, I know it's silly for me to get so upset about this, or I know it was just one person on the internet, or I know this is a minor deal, but it was really difficult for me. And I found myself, you know, saying, you know, everyone I talked to has said that, like, this is a real thing that happened to you just because it happened on the internet doesn't make it any less real. Like if someone yells at you on the sidewalk, that can ruin your whole day. And you're talking about hundreds right. or possibly thousands of people yelling at you online. And this stuff is very well documented, but that brings me to the second consequence, 
which is that the person as a result of this often pulls back from doing whatever they were doing online. And this might mean that they stop talking about a certain set of topics online because they know that they're going to get harassed, or it might mean that they pull back from doing you know, public activist work or internet work or influencer work or any of that. Um, and that was the case for a number of people that I spoke to. And the third is that it has a reinforcement impact in that the community that has harassed the other person often you know, they've reinforced their social norm. They've reinscribed their feeling of themselves as a community because often your community norms are established by contrasting them against another, right? Like I'm a Democrat because I'm not like those terrible Republicans, mm -hmm. for example. Um, and so they kind of get what they want a lot of the time, right? Is that the target stops speaking about whatever it was that they thought had violated their moral norms. And I think this has huge implications when we think about our conversation around attack vectors for specifically minoritized voices that are going getting pushed out of spaces online where we have public conversations. Speaking of those places online where we have public conversations, what are the implications of this model for social media companies and how we approach or think about governing them? That's a great question. It's actually quite difficult to answer because virtually all of our legal protections, which there aren't many of, for harassment are based on what I call dyadic harassment, which is like you harass me or I harass you. It's very, for women, it's often very similar to like having a stalker or something like that. In that case, if somebody is harassing you on a social platform, they're sending you thousands of messages, there may be in some circumstances, some things you can do platform-wise to get that person to leave you alone. And even then that's not by no means always successful, especially if, you know, again, you're a woman, a woman of color, a person of color. The social platforms are not really set up to deal with networked behavior. So if you're harassed by a hundred people, but each of them only send you one tweet mm -hmm. and it's not necessarily like profane, how does the platform govern that? It's very, very difficult. So I think there need to be, you know, if you want, to try to govern this, I think there needs to be more sophisticated models of how harassment happens. And that might involve you know, new detection mechanisms that can tell when there's a whole bunch of messages being targeted at the same person from people who are all interlinked or who all follow the same YouTuber or something. YouTube, I think, has actually made some changes to their harassment policy based on the experiences of Carlos Maza, who was a, uh, a queer Latinx writer who did a YouTube series that became the target of the right-wing pundit Steven Crowder. And he, Maza did this like viral Twitter thread talking about his experiences and showed that Crowder had over time made like 20 or 30 videos where he used racial slurs for him, used homophobic slurs, and had basically led Maza to be harassed by like thousands of Crowder fanboys over time, which was really, you know, really destructive and really terrible. And at the time, YouTube was like, well, you know, they, they made a bunch of boneheaded policy decisions and public statements. They were like, well, you know, if it's 
sandwich between legitimate speech, then we can't do anything about it. And Maz is like, that just means you can, you know, have a bunch of BS and then in the middle you have a harassment right. accusation, you can get away with it. Um, but I think YouTube has been a little bit better about understanding that a video that spends the entire time attacking another person is not necessarily, you know, it's not just about owning the libs with facts and logic. It's also about like directly causing them to be harassed. I'm never very optimistic about platform moderation. I think within trust and safety teams, you have a lot of people who understand this problem intimately and have a lot of great ideas of how to solve it. But I think within the larger companies of social platforms, it's often very challenging to get some of these solutions implemented because they're not necessarily things that are going to increase growth on the platform or make the platform more money. I'm not sure how true this is, but there's this kind of long-standing, perhaps incorrect belief that one of the reasons Twitter has historically been so slow to moderate harassment is that it's a significant part of their network traffic and user interaction. Yeah, the incentives go in the wrong direction there. I mean, when you spoke to trust and safety team members, do they recognize the problem you're describing? Yes, absolutely. So they have ways of sort of monitoring, tracking the kind of sort of network harassment that, that you're talking about? I mean, often it's because the person experiencing it is reporting it, right? Mm. But the trust and safety teams are generally not that big when you think about the sheer number of interactions on any large social network. It was often the smaller companies I spoke with that have, you know, there's just less content and they're able to be more hands-on with their moderation that had developed more sophisticated ways of understanding it. So for example, a chat platform, uh, trust and safety team, I spoke to a couple of different people from the platform and they had these sort of algorithmic methods of detecting um, when people were passing around hateful content or child pornography or other things. And then they could go and flag that instance of the chat software and kind of look it over and then deplatform it if it seemed like it was violating their TOS. And I think they had similar models for the kind of network harassment that I'm describing. There's also this line of thinking that if we just authenticated people online, we'd solve the problem of harassment. Every platform would all of a sudden have the culture of LinkedIn. I mean, you've spoken a bit about this, but what does that fundamentally misunderstand about the problem of harassment? People harass other people under their own names all the time, all the time. Facebook requires everyone to use their real names because, you know, Mark Zuckerberg is an alien who believes that that creates more authentic social interactions, which it absolutely does not. Right. And you still see people saying horrible things to each other on Facebook, right? The other thing is that often people don't think about what they're doing as harassment. Like I've had to make a conscious effort in the seven years that I've been working on this project to stop retweeting moral accusations, even if I agree with the moral justification, right? So one instance mm. that came up a lot in my interviews um, was around neo-Nazis and white supremacists and whether harassing them online was okay or not. And many of the people I interviewed who were left-leaning would bring that up themselves and say, this is absolutely justified. Those people should not have jobs. They shouldn't have be in school. They are, you know, they're contributing to the decline of society, da, da, da. And I might agree with those things, but the harassment is the same. It's the same mechanism and it's, hap it's happening for the same reasons. 
But if you're somebody who's like tracking down neo-Nazis online and going after them, you probably don't think about what you're doing as harassment. You probably think about it as like a morally righteous cause. The problem is that the people on the other side of the spectrum also think about what they're doing as a morally righteous cause. And I think that's one of the reasons it was so hard for me to recruit people who would admit to having perpetrated harassment um, because harassment is obviously an antisocial behavior, but standing up for what you believe in and you know, espousing strong community values, like that's very pro-social behavior. And there's plenty of social science literature showing that people will often like to think of themselves in the best possible light. The other thing is that I think in many of these cases, people are part of a moral community or they're part of a social network or part of a online, you know, a subreddit or something that shares the same values as them, right? So they don't care if other people in that social group know what they're doing, again, which is why I think they feel comfortable doing it using their real name in many circumstances. I recently read your report on online radicalization. You define radicalization as the process whereby a person comes to use or justify the use of violent political actions against an outgroup and or reject egalitarian and democratic values. So similar to how harassment happens, there's an outgroup and a moral justification. Is this just a human thing or is there something about social media that encourages the identification of an outgroup and the justification of one's actions? That's a great question. I am by no means an expert on all of human history, uh, but I think what, <laughs> believe it or not, but I think that what social media does do is it allows people to find other people that they have things in common with across like an, a much, much, much wider set of factors than were ever available previously. You know, if you're super into knitting, you're not just stuck with like your local knitting club. You can like go on, you know, Ravelry or the knitting subreddit and you can find like any kind of knitter who's, you know, shares your values that your heart desires. I mean, in some ways that's wonderful, right? Like if you're an LGBTQ kid or a Muslim kid growing up in an area where you're a very visible minority, it can be wonderful to have spaces on the internet where you can connect with other people who are maybe different from the people in your immediate geographical neighborhood, but who will provide you with support and resources and understanding. But in other ways, you know, one of the things I've been really interested with online radicalization is how similar online radicalization is to like when people get really into any kind of internet group, mm. right? There's like, one of my informants sent me an, an Onion article that was like, it, it was about this guy who had gotten really into artisanal mustard and had kind of fallen down the mustard rabbit hole and was like starting to buy like mustard seeds and cultivate his own, I don't even know what mustard's made of, but like, you know, some kind of like very niche mustardy world that is only available to you if you're like really drilling down into these communities. And I think the internet really does allow people to do that. And entire communities can grow up that have a somewhat, shall we say, quixotic or idiosyncratic set of norms and values. Um, there's one person in my sample who was harassed because she was part of a fan group for a writer. And she and another, she and a what's called a big name fan, like so somebody who's kind of famous within a fan community, they disagreed on the interpretation of a particular passage in the author's books. And they wrote like competing essays on the topic basically. And because the other person was like more famous than her, she ended up getting the bulk of the harassment, which included death threats, by the way, 
lest you think this was like literary and you know highbrow it was not it was like gnarly tumblr drama in that case like you know is that something that's intrinsic to humans maybe but it's certainly something that you get when you have a lot of people who are interacting online with communities that they feel very strongly about and part of gatekeeping those communities or giving those communities strong identities is by saying I'm this kind of person. I'm not that kind of person. I'm a serious mustard enthusiast. I'm not like those like French's mustard, you know, casuals. Right. Would never. Would, Would never. 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 I've been ending each podcast on the same question. If you could give one piece of advice to your teenage self about life or navigating the internet, what would it be and why? Honestly, I think it would just be to like have more chill. Like I was a very emotionally reactive teenager. I think most teenagers are, but I just didn't know where to put all my, you know, I have a, two little kids and they have big feelings and they don't know where to put their big feelings and they act them out. And I did that well up into my early twenties. I had these big feelings. I didn't have a way of processing them. And so I would get into huge arguments with people. I would scream and yell and it just wasn't cute. And I think that Having the tools as an adult to deal with strong emotions, especially strong negative emotions, especially like if you perceived you're being criticized or threatened, I think that's like one of the most important coping skills like an adult human can have. And I don't even know if like a 17 or 18 year old is really capable of, of developing that, but certainly as an adult, I think it's been for me, one of the things that's made me feel so much better about myself is the fact that I can roll with the punches like way, way better. And it also means that there's a lot less blowback on other people as a result. Last question, where can folks find you online? Uh, everywhere, I'm at Alice Tiara, T-I-A-R-A, like a crown, mostly on Twitter. Yeah, mostly, mostly you can find me on Twitter. <laughs> Great. Alice, thanks so much for coming on Untangled. Charlie, it was great. Thanks for having me.